everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my sometimes not latent enough friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about latent variables. What are they? Why we care? And under what circumstances we can analyze them directly? Along the way, we also mention BWI, Dagic, Patrick's Bromance, The Economy, Chris Bodie, Interplanetary Probes, Gronk, 118 Degree Dry Heat, The Evil Eye, and Dora the Explorer. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I remember when Sydney was little. We used to go to this park. You would have loved taking your girls to this park. The park is right next to BWI, Baltimore Washington International Airport, Mm -hmm. and the planes take off and land right over this park. It is spectacular, right? So you'll be playing, and then huge, massive plane just comes right overhead. So for a kid, it is the most exciting thing. Sydney and I used to go there and play all the time when she was little, when we were having daddy time. And one of the things that I remember I used to do with her when we were at this park was we would sit there on the edge of the play structure, and I would do little magic tricks for her. Now, when I was a kid, I was totally into magic. That was really all I wanted for gifts was to get magic sets so that I could do all kinds of magic tricks. I thought it was the coolest thing. Why does that not surprise me? Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) You weren't into that? No, I was pretty dedicated to lighting things on fire and (laughs) blowing them up. So it's a form of magic, but I don't think the same way in like a child's birthday party kind of thing. So when I was a kid, I always checked out magic books from the library and practice tricks. And at the end of the day, I was not very good at all. But when I became a dad and I had a kid who's three years old, I was the best magician in the world. We didn't call it magic, though. It was called dadgic. <laughs> Coming from the family that invented the Tomanus. <laughs> That's right. And so I used to sit on the edge of the play structure and do dagic tricks with Sydney. And <laughs> one of the tricks that I would do was to make a coin disappear and then make it reappear somewhere else. And she loved that trick. But what I would do is I would have a coin, it would go into my hand, and I would say, do you see that plane? The coin is right now on that plane. And it is heading out to the West Coast to go visit Grandpa. And Grandpa is going to put the coin on another plane. And that plane is going to... In fact, here it comes. There's another plane coming. That has our coin on it. And then the coin is going to... Yes, the coin is going to appear in your pocket. And she'd look at me and I'd open my hands and the coin wouldn't be there. And she'd reach into her pocket and she would pull out the coin. And she could construct no other explanation in the world but that the coin went from my hand onto that plane, to the West Coast, onto the other plane, and made its way back into her pocket. And at no point, you didn't want to hold her hand and say, sweetie, let's do the math on this. (laughs) It is 2,100 miles to the West Coast. We're talking 10 hours at the fastest. Think this out, honey. You're three. You should be able to do this by now. This is the difference in our parenting styles. So... (laughs) I'm like, this is magic. Your kids are on a plane and you're like, we could die. (laughs) Well, Uh it reminds me of the classic joke of the passenger asking the flight attendant, how often does a plane crash? And she says, oh, just once. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
I liked the idea that for Sydney, she could embrace this mechanism that, sure, to your mind was completely preposterous, but to her, it made perfect sense. And it was making me think about, you know, when I was a kid, and you know that I don't particularly care for Christmas. Oh, we established that <laughs> unambiguously in the cat's cradle. Yeah, for a variety of reasons that I pay somebody $150 an hour to help me understand. <laughs> <laughs> So I remember, for example, it was December 24th. I would put out some carrots, some cookies, glass of milk, and I would go to bed. And the next morning, carrots had bites out of them. Cookies had bites out of them. A glass of milk drunk almost all the way down. There was always a little bit of milk left. Like, <laughs> well, you couldn't, you couldn't finish the milk. But there was only one possible explanation that could have resulted in why the carrots are gone and all of that. As you also know from the holiday episode, I was deeply invested in the Christmas season. For us, a Colorado thing is that we had reindeer food, and it would be some oats mixed with sparkles, and you would spread it out on the snow in front of the house, hmm. and that would be gone in the morning. There was only one explanation for that. So if I were a kid and I had a whiteboard... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> right, right. Especially in 1972. Yeah. So my kids actually do have a whiteboard right now. So but, do mine. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was a kid, those things didn't exist. You know why the whiteboard is one of the greatest inventions of the last 100 years? I don't. Because it's remarkable. Wait for it. Oh, I'm going to wait <laughs> as long as it takes. Really? Nothing? <laughs> Okay, so a child in 1972 goes to a whiteboard that doesn't exist yet, but okay. Yes, but if I put up on that whiteboard a little box, and inside that box was cookies, and another box that had carrots, and another box that had sparkles in the snow with oats, a lot of people, when they're at the whiteboard, and me, if I were a kid at the whiteboard, I probably would have connected all of these things with arrows, but one of the most important tools that we use on the whiteboard isn't just the arrows, it's the circles that we put on that board. The circles that represent these things that we can't see, but we think are really the driving mechanisms for the things that we can see. And for me, there was only one thing that could have gone in that Christmas circle. Santa Claus is a latent variable. Santa Claus is a latent variable. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. And we talked during a model-based thinking episode that we had that models in general are these placeholders for things that we don't necessarily directly observe. And sometimes they're placeholders for the connections among the things that we do observe. And sometimes they're placeholders for other things that we actually don't observe. And what I'd like to talk about is those circles. What the heck are they? What do they represent? What value do they have in a lot of the analytics that we do? Certainly in the things that you and I do, they play a very prominent role. And I find it one of those things that have come up on multiple prior episodes, which is when you start thinking about things in a particular way, at least for me, you start seeing them everywhere. So it's the old <laughs> I see dead people, now it's yeah. I see latent variables. I see dead people. I find latent variables fascinating. Mm -hmm. We'll get into a little bit about mechanically, how do we identify those? How do we estimate those? Where can we, where can't they? I find it more fascinating thinking about it more at a 30,000 foot level. 
when we were talking in the 10-year episode, what is research excellence? Yes. What do we believe to exist? Why is it important? What are the dimensions that we want to evaluate? And then the logical next step is, well, how can we bring empirical data to bear to adjudicate on the veracity of this underlying latent construct? And as soon as you start thinking about that, we really are surrounded by latent variables in our everyday life. Depression, anxiety, Mm -hmm. there's some individual variability in depressive symptomatology and it's manifested in, do you feel lonely? Do you feel sad? Do you not have enjoyment from activities you used to? But start to generalize that, right, is to start thinking about the economy. I unambiguously have a bromance with a guy named Kai Rizdahl. Now, Greg, you are fully aware of this, and I have detected some jealousy, I have to admit. It's only when you've called me Kai a couple of times. A couple of times. (laughs) So Kai Rizdahl hosts a daily radio show called Marketplace that's focused on business and the economy. He also co-hosts a podcast with Molly Wood called Make Me Smart, and if you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend it. It's really wonderful. And, as you know, Greg, they played an audio clip of mine on the air that I submitted where, maybe not surprisingly, I recast COVID deaths in terms of plane crashes. So give this a go. A typical 737 seats about 150 passengers and crew. And at the end, Kai encouraged others to submit audio memos, but that were maybe a little bit more cheerful. Your answer to the Make Me Smart question uh, will hopefully be just a a tad less depressing than that, but that's okay if it is. (laughs) Email your voice memos or just... But I digress. Why I bring up Kai, I mean, beyond the bromance, (laughs) is he routinely says the stock market is not the economy and the economy is not the stock market. The Dow is not the economy and the economy is not the Dow. But this raises a really interesting question, which is what is the economy? The Dow Jones, GDP, trade deficit, unemployment rate, yield on the 10-year bond, all of these, none of these. Theoretically, what do we define to be the economy? And in turn, what observable indicators can we assess that is reflective of this underlying theoretical construct? Mm -hmm. The quality of a paper, the quality of a university. So you have a teenager who's applying to colleges and you think, is that a good university? Well, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. One that I really like, a Pandora music station is a latent variable. Mm -hmm. So you start a song. And it is jazz trumpeter Chris Boti, B-O-T-T-I. Okay. I saw Chris Boti in concert with my wife. And I leaned over and I said, oh, I got to get me one of those suits. And she leaned back and said, oh, sweetie, it ain't the suit. I like this song by Chris Bode, so I thumbs it up. Well, what does that mean? Well, it upweights jazz, it upweights trumpet, it upweights contemporary music. Another song comes on then that's been selected based similar to those characteristics. I thumbs mm-hmm. it up, I thumbs it down, I thumbs it up, I thumbs it down. Pandora is building a sense of what do I want this station to be? Mm-hmm. It's a latent variable. What does this represent? All right, so you're throwing around the word latent variable pretty loosely here. Can you guide us in a definition of a latent variable? I just talk too much. You start. 
All right, I will take a shot at this latent variable thing. When we say latent variable, one part of it is that it's variable. That means that there are individual differences on it. It's latent, that means you can't see it. We'll talk about the fact that you can't see it in just a minute. So it's some continuum, or actually it could be a set of categories. It could have a lot of characteristics, but it's variable. It has to be variable. It can't be a constant. A way to think about it is that I go to my data file and I look at a column and I go, there's nothing there. There's nothing in a column that's labeled depression or Pandora or Santa Claus or whatever it is we're talking about, right? Now, there might be reasons why you don't have those data. It might be that you could have gathered data on that thing directly, but you didn't. It could be that it is only some kind of hypothetical entity. Like maybe you don't even really know if it exists. I don't even know what the heck the economy means. So maybe it's just something that we use to talk about things. And I think the economy is a really good example that we should try to unpack a little bit later. Sometimes a variable is latent because we just don't have the technology to be able to access that thing. That aligns with some medical things that we might know that there's a process operating in there, but we can't access it, at least not pre-mortem. Is that a word? Pre-mortem? That's a word. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> it is. So it's a variable, and we can't see it for a variety of reasons. Do you want to augment that at all? or? I really like that. I don't have anything to add. I think that that very nicely captures what we're after. I like your distinction where it's theoretical. It's something we believe to exist. But distinguishing that it might be possible to measure it based on observable empirical characteristics, but it might not. Mm -hmm. It might be something that we believe to exist, and at least using technology at this time, we can't directly evaluate that. You can think about gravity mm. as a latent variable. We believe it to exist. We believe it to have these impacts. We can predict things extraordinarily well. I have a cousin who maps out trajectories for interplanetary probes. I hate talking to him over Christmas break because he talks to me about how he calculated the trajectory of the Mercury messenger <laughs> so that it leaves the atmosphere, accelerates, is whipped around the gravitational orbit of Mars and then is captured by Mercury's without any propulsion. And then he asks what I've been working on. And I'm like, I got a dead animal in my van. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a call out for a paper that we would recommend, Bolin 2002, mm -hmm. Annual Review of Psychology. I think it's something like... I can tell you exactly what it is. Go for it. Latent Variables in Psychology and the Social Sciences. He really nicely explores the history of latent variables. What do we mean? What are alternative definitions? He has some really nice structure in thinking about what are some less technical definitions, some more technical definitions. One of my favorite lines in that paper says something like, latent variables are at least as old as religion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just love that line. But the one that you said about going to your data file and is there a column there mm -hmm. is the definition that Ken lands on. I think he calls it a sample realization, which is do you have a numerical value in your data file for this thing that you believe to exist? And what I really like about his definition is he says, 
Is it missing for at least a subset of the observations? That makes a much broader set of things fall under latent. For example, missing data. For example, a residual term. For example, mixture, a mixture of distributions. Well, that's latent. Did you observe it? No. Are you trying to infer its existence? Yes. But also what it rapidly expands to is there are subdisciplines that have a deeply entrenched incredulity about latent variables. If you didn't observe it directly, you have no business working it into your model. Well, one thing I love about Ken's paper is to say, really, (laughs) does your model have a residual term? Did you directly observe that? Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so many conversations that I've had with people in the medical community. I don't want to generalize to all people in the medical community, but... Ah, go ahead. Okay, fine. All people in the medical community... (laughs) (laughs) The idea of latent variables and latent variable methods, I've gotten the worst side-eye of all from people in the medical community. The case that I make in those conversations, politely, because they're a thousand times smarter than I am, is that their whole job is dealing with latent variables, right? If someone is trying to diagnose the presence or absence of a particular disease, that's an underlying condition that you cannot observe. And so what you are doing is trying to use pieces of information that you might call symptoms to try to understand about the presence or absence of some underlying condition. If that's not latent, I don't know what is latent. I will often talk with them about the imprecision that we have in measurements. This is another way to think about latent. I would like to use temperature as an example. There was some point in history where temperature was just a concept that people had. The cave people, they knew that it was warmer on some days and it was colder on other days. But there was no quantification of that. There was no way to hold temperature in your hand. But eventually, technology came where we could measure the amount of kinetic energy of the molecules in the air or whatever the substance is, and we could attach some sort of number to that. So early on, temperature, there was nothing in the cave person's data file, right? Cave person went to the spreadsheet. Mm. (laughs) Mm. That was Gronk. Yeah, he used Excel.1. But the thing about temperature is that we could even argue that the measures that we have of temperature now still are not the actual latent variable. And if someone needs convincing of that, you only sort of have to ask them, why if I have three thermometers, am I getting three different readings? Mm. The idea that measurement error is tied to this. What I would like to do is lasso in some of the other language that seems to fall into this arena We might talk about these latent variables as factors, right? That's a term you and I are very accustomed to using. We might talk about these things as constructs. Some worlds talk about them as hidden variables. In my neck of the woods, my go-to term is latent, and that I often find myself talking about constructs. So what is your construct? Are you interested in depression? How do you define that? Often, we can start to build a fort out of our equations and our estimators and our robust adjustments and feel really good about ourselves in the complexity of the statistical model without first taking a step back and saying, well, what do you mean by that? So going to your temperature example, yeah, why do we have three thermometers and they read different things? The other question is, well, what about humidity? What about windshield? What about heat index? Do you include those? Are you only interested in molecular movement? Mm -hmm. 
that is causing heat or is it perceived temperature? I spent five years in Phoenix with 118 degree dry heat. I have spent 24 years in North Carolina with 92 degree wet heat. There is what, 26 degrees of difference between the two? They both suck. So what do you mean by temperature? So I like even just almost going back to fundamentals Mm -hmm. of, oh my gosh, if you blow that theoretical definition of what you mean by the construct, then it's a fool's errand to even move forward. One of the keys here for the discussion about the latent variables is that the latent variables pretty much always represent where your theory is at. And I would say that's the case almost irrespective of what particular field you are in. Imagine you're out at the bar with your buddy. Hey, everybody, I'm Kai Rizzo. (laughs) Whether you've got pitchers of beer or fancy cocktails, buddy says, so what are you working on? And you draw a picture of the model and you slide that cocktail napkin over to that person. That picture is almost always going to have constructs on it. It's almost always going to have grand terms whether it's motivation or achievement or depression or economy or all of these different things, latent variables are almost always the level at which your theory is going to exist. In other fields, what people might do is say, this is my theory and I'm going to write a nice essay about these constructs. I'm going to talk about why I think they are interrelated. You and I are in the position where we say, write an essay, Let's go out and get ourselves some data. Let's try and get something that we think, if it's not motivation, it's related to motivation. If it's not depression, it's related to depression. So you and I are in a position where we say, let's do the best we can to gather evidence around those things and then start to put those latent variables to use, both in the sense of testing them as well as assessing how those things interrelate with each other. Another thing that I really like about Ken's description of these things is Ken talks about how latent variables enhance the external validity of what we're studying and what we're trying to understand. It generalizes. Mm -hmm. And so you're not looking at relations among a specific item predicting another specific item. You are looking at a relationship between depression and motivation, or you're looking at a relation between stress and substance use. And when you work at the level of the latent variable, of the latent construct, Mm -hmm. you're generalizing our understanding beyond one item on this and one item on that, which necessarily is very narrow band. If it's possible for us to elevate our analyses as best we can to the level of the constructs that we actually care about, to the level of these latent variables, then we have a much more continuous story arc that goes from the theories that we have up front to the conclusions that we have on the back end. And when you're in your very first research methods class, you talk about operationalization, right? I am interested in motivation, and so I use this particular instrument. I am interested in depression, and so I looked at how often people have self-injurious thoughts. So there's the thing that you seem to care about, and then there's the way that we operationalize it. And what you and I worry about, first of all, we worry about the latent variable itself. Is that a reasonable entity? And then how can we get that latent variable into some version of an analysis that helps people to answer questions more directly at the level of that latent variable? And thus enter the reaper 
who is demanding payment mm. because one thing that we all know is you don't get something for nothing. So mm. you believe this underlying construct to exist. All of us are repressed novelists in the introduction. We wax poetic about whatever it is that we're passionate about. We believe grit exists and it's this mm -hmm. perseverance and resilience in the face of frustration and all of this. We write paragraphs about that and then we need to develop items that assess that in some valid and reliable way, but we have to make certain assumptions. We have to impose certain restrictions in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And it goes back a bit to the incredulity. I don't think the incredulity is misplaced. So I teach factor analysis, mm -hmm. and I draw on the whiteboard a multivariate regression. And I maybe put three predictors, X1, X2, X3, and I correlate them. And then I put maybe, you know, five outcomes. It's all just a thought experiment, but I draw five mm -hmm. outcomes. Y1, Y2, 3, 4, 5. Mm -hmm. And I talk about that as a multivariate regression. We have an optimal linear set of our predictors predicting a set of these dependent variables. Then I erase the squares that are the predictors in the regression, and I replace them with circles, but everything else is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, now we're going to do a multivariate regression, but we have the minor complexity that we didn't directly observe the values on the predictors for anyone in the sample. Mm -hmm. All of our predictors are missing for all of our subjects. Tell me you don't lean back and say... I'm sorry, what? Feels like the coin getting on an airplane I, and going out to the West Coast. And <laughs> Come on, honey, do the math. <laughs> yeah, and then I transition into, well, how then do we go about doing this? Because then we bring in not only the numerical, statistical, mathematical architecture to say that if these latent constructs exist in the way that we believe them to exist, mm -hmm. then we would expect to find this particular covariance structure, this particular mean vector, and then it becomes a logical syllogism. And we won't drill into that. We've talked about that on earlier conversations, but we have an observed covariance matrix, a reproduced covariance matrix, and we make these logical deductions about what we believe to exist and what we observe. The incredulity, I think, is understandable, but I also believe it is very often misplaced. There's a really great quote from the 50s by, it's like Lovinger, and it's something like, traits exist in people, constructs exist in magazines, or the minds of psychologists, something like that. So let me ask you, when you think about latent variables, do you think about them as real things? Oh, that's a great question. Yes. Tell me more about how you think about or under what circumstances. So imagine that I am working with a 12-year-old girl in middle school, and she's having some emotional difficulties. I sit down in front of her, and I believe, based on the evidence presented in front of me, that she is depressed. She is struggling mm -hmm. with feelings of depression. Mm -hmm. I feel that that is real and that exists and that is a characteristic of her. I define what I mean by depression in my head 
because not all clinicians and not all researchers even define depression in the same way. Mm -hmm. I may adopt a particular definition of depression, but other people may adopt a different kind of definition. In my mind's eye, I believe that she is elevated in this latent depression. Now, how do I know that? Well, it's based on the observable characteristics, the symptoms, what she tells me, what parents tell me. Mm -hmm. It's not dissimilar to do you believe there is a thing called gravity? Do you believe that really exists? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. So let me ask you, with your depression example, if you could put this 12-year-old subject that you have into an fMRI machine, and it was the greatest machine ever— and you elicit the kinds of information from her that you believe is information that relates to depression, and you see absolutely no pattern to what lights up. Do you still believe in depression, or do you still believe in the utility of the concept of depression? How does that tie if you can't find something real that answers to the name of depression? First, you're touching on a nerve. <laughs> You can't measure depression in an fMRI machine, and you okay. never could measure depression in an fMRI machine. Okay. So setting aside that entire issue, I don't believe it could ever be measured in its native form. I believe the <laughs> very nature of depression, by definition, cannot be observed directly and can only be inferred indirectly. I think that we can do that in valid ways. I think we could do that in reliable ways. But even in a silly thought experiment, mm -hmm. I don't believe that depression in that 12-year-old girl exists in a way that could be directly observed. That doesn't mean for you that it has no value. It just means that it's something that is very slippery and and we have to try and triangulate at it from a variety of sources. Yeah? And that it's, that's reality. Mm -hmm. Everything is latent. Mm -hmm. You just argued that temperature is latent. You go to your doc and you say, I've got this symptom, I've got this symptom, and I've got this symptom. What's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. That's a multiple indicator latent factor. Yeah, I am absolutely comfortable navigating those waters because I believe that reflects the reality of the world in which we live. There's a nice criticism, and I don't remember the exact wording of it, nor necessarily the author, but it might have been Norman Cliff. <laughs> so you don't know the author, you don't know the paper, and you don't know the <laughs> quote. But yeah, please, go ahead. Gives me tremendous freedom, though. Um. <laughs> remember that guy who wrote that thing, who said that, <laughs> yeah. whatever? It was something like, a factor is nothing more than a placeholder for the covariation among a set of variables. The way I think about it visually is if we made a Venn diagram of all the variability of a collection of variables, and there is that region where those variables overlap in the middle, I think about that as the factor. And I think about that being consistent with that definition that a latent variable can be thought of as a placeholder for why a set of variables covary. I think that that doesn't make it real. That doesn't make depression exist, the fact that a variety of things covary. But I would say it doesn't mean it's not useful, whether or not it is real in some definable sense. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I don't know. I mean, it gets philosophical in a hurry. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I'm still not entirely clear what you mean real. We could get a bunch mm -hmm. of philosophers of science and swirl brandy and be intolerably self-righteous and talk mm -hmm. about what is real and what is not real. Mm -hmm. There's moving from the philosophical 
theoretical, what is a construct, what do you believe it to be, do you believe it to be real or not real, is anything real in this world, is this all inception? How complex is the idea? Simply enough. No idea is simple when you need to plant it in somebody else's mind. Or the Matrix, or, you know, whatever. Dora the Explorer, that's, I don't know. Did she ever address that? I think, I think it was Dora. Dora goes into alternative universes. Um, but. Inception, the Matrix, and Dora the Explorer. I need your help to stop swiping. You have to say swiper, no swiping. <laughs> oh, God. That we were doing so well. Maybe this is a transition point of saying, all right, we're going to quit swirling brandy in our snifter and say, we believe depression exists. Mm -hmm. We believe the economy. Is the economy real? The Dow is not the economy, and the economy is not the Dow. That is very real. Yes, absolutely it's real. And we've defined what that is. And so how do we go about inferring its existence? You're shaking your head at me. What are yeah, you doing I am. shaking I your head at me? because of the economy. I want to use that as an example. And again, I've taken one economics course in my entire life, but I still want to talk about that as an entity. I don't even know how to think about that as a variable. What does it mean to say there is more economy, there is less economy? Can you expand that to something that has a sense of variability? We would define that as the health of the economy, the strength of the economy. Great. That's helpful already. So economic strength, economic health. So there could be some place that is more strong or more healthy economically versus a place that is less strong, less healthy economically. Sure. Great. I needed that for me because if I don't understand the variable, it's hard for me to talk about it as a latent variable. Let me throw out some things. We'll play a little game here. I don't like the direction this is going. <laughs> Imagine I was interested in the construct of life satisfaction, that I believe life satisfaction is a continuum along which people vary. How might you gather data on that? I would theoretically define what I mean by that. I would develop a set of items that I believed assessed that. I would randomly sample some sample of individuals. I would have them fill that out, and I would estimate a model to represent the covariance structure among those items for that sample of individuals given a single underlying factor of life satisfaction. Great. So in your explanation, which I liked very much, you are making the assumption that change in life satisfaction leads to change in whatever those measured variables are. You know, this is like this gotcha. Uh -huh. You're going to throw causal indicators at me. You have been laying out a breadcrumb trail to the Wicked Witch's house. Permission to treat the witness as hostile, Your Honor? Yeah, damn straight you can. <laughs> hostile, hostile. I was hostile when I walked in the room. If we were to ask the court stenographer to go back and reread that testimony, mm -hmm. I would not have explicated whether I believe the underlying latent factor gave rise to those items or whether those items combined in a way to induce the latent factor. And yet your explanation of using the covariance structure I know, itself... I know, I was hoping you weren't going to say that. All right. So in the end, that is exactly where I'm going. And if you had the same sort of implications when you were discussing depression, in that you believe that even if we can't necessarily observe depression, we believe it's a reasonable entity, 
And that that depression leads to loneliness that you feel even when you're around other people or a loss of interest in activities that you otherwise used to be interested in or a variety of other things. You think about there as being a relationship between the underlying latent variable and the measured variables that goes in a very specific direction, right? Yes. And... I push that home in that factor analysis class I teach when I replace that predictors in the multivariate regression with latent factors. What that means is a one unit change on the underlying latent variable leads to a lambda unit increase across the set of items. It is a fundamentally causal statement that the reason you observe the covariance structure among the items is in part because they share an underlying causal influence. Absolutely. All right. Let me ask you now, imagine someone was interested in what they would just call general drug use. How might you measure that? Right. And so we're moving into then causal indicators, which I think is a wonderfully fun topic to argue about. There have been years and years and years of published research that use multiple indicator latent factors for substance use. I myself have contributed to this. I actually have a paper looking at a bifactor structure where imagine, so this is a real example, a paper that mm-hmm. I wrote. We had eight items that assessed adolescent substance use. Four of them were different dimensions of alcohol use. In the last Mm -hmm. 30 days, have you drank uh, at least one or more beer, wine, distilled spirits? Have you gotten impaired? You know, whatever the four items were. And then there were four items that were separate assessments of different substances. So Mm -hmm. marijuana, amphetamines or stimulants, hallucinogenics, whatever. There were eight items. And there was an underlying latent factor. And then the point was I was showing this bifactor model where you estimate a second factor for the alcohol use items so that they don't dominate the poly substance. Mm -hmm. But a huge limitation of that is, wait a minute. So a one unit increase on poly substance use leads to a lambda unit increase in the probability that you're going to use marijuana, that you're going to use amphetamines, that you're going to use hallucinogens, that you're going to drink five or more alcoholic drinks in a single setting. Mm -hmm. And you lean back and say, no, it doesn't. Yeah. But I got the pub and the citation, so it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the message I think people should take. (laughs) Should really take from this. (laughs) Thanks, Uncle Patrick. Um, (laughs) But I'll tell you what. That's not to say that there isn't necessarily some underlying latent variable for these particular things, but maybe it would be best not to think of it as polysubstance use, right? Maybe there's some underlying chemical dependency or sensation seeking or something else that drives people's desire to engage in some of these behaviors. I don't necessarily mind that on a theoretical level. But I certainly wouldn't call it polysubstance use or general drug use and all of that. And I think that's at the core of a lot of the challenge for people analytically when they start getting into these construct issues. And I'm careful not to call it necessarily a latent variable because the term latent variable is often not always, but often associated with the systems where change in the underlying factor or construct is assumed to precipitate change in the measured variable. But here we're talking about maybe it goes the other way. 
And you think maybe now that that drug example has the arrows going the other way in theory. Is that correct? Yes and no. The reason that I published that and the reason that I demonstrated that as a viable model is I think that there are still advantages hmm. to modeling in that way given other purposes in your analyses. I don't think a multiple indicator latent factor of underlying polysubstance use is invalid. I don't. Hmm. I think that there is benefit, especially if you're studying new users in, in adolescence, that really any use is being involved in substance use. And so, no, I don't think that's an invalid model. I think that we have to embrace what we're saying in that model, mm -hmm. what causal mechanism we're inferring that we have to note that, we have to embrace that, and we have to think about what are the implications of that as we draw other inferences from that model. So it's a tricky needle to thread, I think, because to raise Boland's name again, Ken has been one of the leaders, among several, but one of the leaders in this field of talking about this very issue of distinguishing effect indicators, which are a standard factor analysis kind of thing. We're seeing these symptoms because there's underlying depression to cause indicators mm -hmm. that, no, it's silly to say that socioeconomic status is a multiple indicator latent factor. So that's a classic one Ken talks about. Mm -hmm. You have, what is your annual salary? You have, what is your occupational prestige? You have, what is the value of your house? You have, how many years of education do you have? To say that there's some underlying latent factor that gives rise in a causal way of how many years you went to school is silly. Yes. And so you reverse those arrows and you say this optimal linear set of indicators induces, creates, causes itself this underlying latent factor that we think of as socioeconomic status. I am totally on board with that. Mm -hmm. Except that model's not identified from an empirical standpoint. You can draw the model I just described. You can't estimate the model that I just described. And that's where I start feeling uncomfortable. Good. Let me talk about at least two aspects of that. The first thing is that the question that every single researcher who wants to think about their constructs or latent variables is, the question they need to ask themselves is, what is the relationship that that has with the measured variables? And exactly what you said, that is that it makes no sense whatsoever to imagine a latent dimension of SES that if that changes, it, you know, oh, I tweaked your SES. All of a sudden, your mom has more education. All of a sudden, your house is worth more money. Those words make no sense. And that is the first thing you have to do is just ask yourself the does it make a damn bit of sense kind of test. And then the other side of that is how the heck are you going to model it? And this is probably the most frustrating conversation that people have with me when they come into my office. I will literally say, tell me about the relationship between the measures that you have and the latent variable. Tell me, use the words of the mechanism you think is operating. So for example, I had someone in my office not that long ago who was interested in studying what I think is a very, very valuable construct, exposure to discrimination. And the kinds of measures that this person wanted to gather was, to what extent do you feel that you have experienced discrimination in your workplace? To what extent have you experienced it within your community? To what extent do you experience discrimination in the media that you consume? A variety of these things. And again, the person was interested in exposure to discrimination. But now, if you take that step and try to model it such that exposure to discrimination is a latent variable, 
You can't really do that unless you're comfortable saying the words that you have some latent exposure to discrimination and that leads you to experience discrimination in the media, that leads you to experience discrimination in the workplace. And those are harder things to say. It makes more sense to say that because I have experienced more discrimination in the workplace, that means that my exposure to discrimination is larger. Because I've experienced more discrimination in my community, my exposure to discrimination is larger. And so we find ourselves very often on this other side where we have cause indicators instead of effect indicators. And you put your finger right on the problem. How the heck do you model that? I had a very dear friend in grad school, Lily Lengua. She's now at University of Washington at Seattle. Mm -hmm. She's just a wonderful human being and a brilliant Mm -hmm. researcher and clinician. And I was, as a grad student, working on a project where we had a set of indicators that assessed uncontrollable life stressful events in children. Mm -hmm. Things that were beyond the child's control, but that caused them stress ostensibly. So your parents argue, your parents drink, there was a divorce, your parent lost a job. And I laid this out as a multiple indicator latent factor in the usual way where they were effect indicators. And Lily looked at it and just very sweetly, she said, so are you going to call the latent variable an evil eye factor? And I was like, what do you you mean? And she was like, well, so that there's individual variability in the extent to which just bad things happen to you that are unrelated. (laughs) And it was so funny because it was another one of these things. And I've done this my entire life from when I was age five all the way up. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand what it's doing. And she left, and like two hours later, I'm sitting in this empty office, and I'm like, oh my God, she's exactly right. This model makes Mm -hmm. no sense. Yeah. And I started labeling it in my path diagrams, evil eye. (laughs) Evil eye. (laughs) I love that. Because somebody gave you an evil eye. So Uh I'm going to ask listeners to do a little thought experiment with me. Okay. This is kind of fun, and there's a paper to be written out there on this, and I've just never gotten around to writing it. All right, picture four manifest variables in squares, and there are four measures of SES. We have income, education, occupational prestige, and the value of your house. All right, so we Mm -hmm. have four of these indicators, boxes, and correlate them all with one another. Now, from those have single-headed arrows moving to the right that lead to a circle that we have labeled SES. So Mm -hmm. we believe the optimal linear combination of these four observed characteristics of socioeconomic status jointly combine to induce this latent factor of SES. Mm -hmm. Everybody's on board, totally cool. All right, we can't estimate that. That's not identified. Mm -hmm. We cannot bring empirical data to bear to evaluate that in any way. What we can do, go read Ken's papers. He clearly defines this. We can define that if that latent variable predicts at least two downstream variables. All right, so picture in your mind's eye, you have that latent factor of SES, and moving again left to right, draw two single-headed arrows out of that circle and have it predict math ability and reading ability because you're interested in individual variability in student school achievement, all right? Now, that is a causal indicator latent variable model where the four SES measures induce the latent factor that in turn predict reading and math ability. All right, in and out, nobody gets hurt. Hmm. Now, picture that path diagram and rotate those two distal outcomes, reading and math, 90 degrees so they poke out of the top of that circle. All right, it suddenly became 
a multiple indicator latent factor of school achievement that you are regressing on the optimal linear combination of your set of four predictors. If the indicators poke out of the top, it's a multiple indicator latent factor that indicates school achievement. And if you rotate it 90 degrees to the side, there are two distal outcomes that are being predicted by SES. What I find both maddening and engaging about the entire argument is those two models are identical. Mm -hmm. They're the same model. You're just drawing it differently. And so then what your latent factor becomes is a theoretical determination, not a statistical one. That's right. It's a duck. Wait, it's a rabbit. How does it know? Whether it is the result of the things coming into it or it is the motivator of the things coming out of it, you have to have both of those sides in place to estimate it. And I would say the thing that makes it extra maddening is that what if you had different outcome variables? So I say, Mm. okay, and now I'm interested in SES's influence on how long you are able to stay in your career and how much you enjoy socializing with others. So I have two different outcomes. I rerun this model. It is also going to be identified so I can get a solution out of it. Here's the damn frustrating thing how the variables come into this thing I'm calling SES now can be entirely different. This type of model is very, very sensitive to what you put on the other side of the factor, the things that are the outcome variables. And I think that's one of the real challenges of trying to model these sometimes called formative systems, where the variables come together to form some sort of latent variable, But it's also where I find it so interesting, right, is our day job is hard. What we do is hard. And I love arguing with Ken about this stuff because he's so thoughtful about it. And at the end of the day, he shrugs and says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Right? I mean, it's like, yeah, you're right. Uh Uh-huh. But are you telling me that if you increase your SES latent factor, that causes your dad to go farther in college 40 years ago? Right. I love it. There is no reconciliation of this beyond what is your theoretical model dictate? What do you Mm -hmm. believe? And this goes back to the cookies and the reindeer food is what do you believe gave rise to these things that we observed? You're exactly right about that changing in if you change the distal outcome, because not only changing it, but another one that bothers me is the simple example I used is you have reading achievement and math achievement. It's very easy to envision there being some shared underlying cause to those two measures. But imagine that I'm building SES into my mediating model in which I have this causal indicator SES that in turn predicts mother's monitoring of child behavior, stress in the home, temperamental characteristics of the child Mm -hmm. as three distal outcomes that are in some mediating mechanism. All right, do your rotation and move those three Mm -hmm. distal outcomes up. Well, now you have a multiple indicator latent factor that is indicated by parenting, stress, and biological propensity to respond to the environment in maladaptive ways. 
What does that even represent? And as you change those distal outcomes, because your SES cause indicators will give you a completely different cocktail coming into SES, it starts to make you think, what is SES if how these variables pour in changes depending on which and how many of those outcome variables I have? I don't quite know what to do with that. So let's imagine it doesn't have to be SES. It could be the example I used, exposure to discrimination. <laughs> it could be the evil eye. It could be the economy or economic strength. And someone tells you, I want to model that. What do you tell them? How do you reconcile this from a practical standpoint? So that's what I think is the fun part. I think that's what the challenge is. First, I completely agree with what you just said. It almost being an intellectual shove in the chest up against the wall of, what do you mean? What do you mean by SES? What do you mean by exposure to discrimination? Another example that I use in my teaching is a published application that has a multiple indicator latent factor of severity of heart attack. And the items are the doctor's prognosis for recovery, time since the attack occurred, mm -hmm. number of days in the hospital. None of those make any sense right. that the severity of your myocardial infarction would cause how long it's been since you've had a heart attack. It makes no sense at all. So one is, what do you mean theoretically? But then the second one that I think you're raising is, so what do we do about it? Yeah. It is still a critically important issue, like exposure to discrimination, getting a sense of individual variability and socioeconomic status. Well, one is, is you use Ken's approach to estimate these models with what we just talked about. So Ken has a wonderful early paper with Lennox, Bolin and Lennox. Mm -hmm. Ken wrote a really nice piece with an ex-student of mine, Sierra Bainter, mm -hmm. who actually had an award-winning limerick, if you remember. <laughs> it was mildly clever. Mildly clever. <laughs> but here's what's tricky is what to do is not always obvious. So some people might say, oh my gosh, you're right. Well, we'll take the four SES measures and take a mean of them. Well, wait a minute. When you take a mean we've talked about on prior episodes, well, that is a multiple indicator latent factor that has all the loadings set to one and the residual variances set to zero. If you take a mean of four items, you are saying that is an effect indicator. This unweighted combination of these four measures represents the underlying construct. Well, that is an effect indicator model that you're imposing. So then you say, well, I'll just use the four separately, not estimate that latent variable that we described that we believe to induce, and we're just going to go straight to those mediating mechanisms. So we have four measures of SES that are going to directly predict reading achievement and directly predict math achievement. Okay, we can do that. Mm -hmm. But now we go back to the regression episode and say, well, each of those regression coefficients is the unique influence of parental education above and beyond occupational prestige. So that doesn't seem ideal, mm -hmm. right? Because it's also not taking into account interactions, all right? So we all in academia know we are high on occupational prestige, 
but we're not necessarily high on salary, mm-hmm. where there are other occupations in which they're lower on occupational prestige, but higher on salary. Well, how do you take that joint effect into account? Now you start talking about interactions. The short answer is, is I don't know. I don't know always what the best way to address this is. I agree. And if I pull back a little bit and take a running start at this, we've talked about latent variables in the sense of having a good understanding of what you mean by your latent variable. When you believe that the latent variable is the driver of the measured indicators, then we have all of our covariance structure modeling at our disposal, our confirmatory factor analysis. When you believe that these latent variables are the result of, that are caused by a series of indicators, We have identification problems, as we've said, and one option is to try to model it with outcomes attached. That has drawbacks. Another is to try to define it separately, as you said, take an average or do some other weighted thing that you can defend, but that in and of itself is a model. And the other thing, and I think this is sort of where you're going as I try to loop in what you just said, sometimes the best latent variable is no latent variable at all. And that is to say, if I'm interested in socioeconomic status as an important variable, and I use the word variable loosely, then to me, sometimes I just think of that as a label that I use for a collection of measured variables that I otherwise incorporate into my model into some sort of sensible way. So I might have no need to group those socioeconomic indicators. I sure as heck am not going to model them as effect indicators of some underlying latent socioeconomic status. But at the same time, I might not officially model them as though those variables pour into one particular entity. I might just incorporate those three or four measures as predictors of things and talk about them collectively in my model. So I don't necessarily have to draw a circle around them other than just my conceptual interpretation. The relations that they have with other outcomes might be simple and linear, or they might be more complex and interactive the way that you alluded to. But for me, and you can disagree with this, for me, sometimes the best latent variable is no latent variable at all. I completely agree. I guess I have two walkaway points to this. One Mm -hmm. is, at the end of the day, it distills down to a theoretical issue, a thought experiment, Mm -hmm. a philosophical belief of what you're studying and what is represented in the model that you're estimating. And why I like that is that it takes us back to first principles. What is the construct? What do you believe to exist? And how are you assigning numerical values to that in some principled way? And the other side is sometimes I'm okay to take a bullet in a model Mm. that I don't believe there to be an evil eye factor underlying these Mm -hmm. uncontrollable life stressful events. I don't believe this polysubstance variable exists as a valid and reliable measure of substance use. But it sure represents something that I'm interested in and captures an important component Mm -hmm. in what I'm trying to study. And I'm going to put that in knowing that maybe that's really a causal indicator factor and I'm treating it as an effect indicator. But I've got a longer con that I'm Mm -hmm. working on and I'm willing to take that as a potential limitation in my model so that I can achieve these other goals. And that leaves me with two things. One is knowing that's a limitation in the model Mm -hmm. and two, unambiguously communicating that to the reader. So that brings us back to the bite out of a cookie some carrots, some oats with sparkles in the snow, a half or completely consumed glass of milk. 
and having an explanation for all of those things. One explanation is that all parents everywhere got together in some sort of grand conspiracy. Or there's a simpler explanation, a more parsimonious explanation, one single latent variable that is responsible for all of those things. And I'm a huge fan of parsimony on this, I got to say. I agree. What a nice place to end on parsimony cookies and reindeer food. I hope folks have found this conversation useful, maybe to think a little bit more about latent variables and all the challenges associated with them. Thank you, Patrick. This is the highlight of my day. So thank you for that, Greg. And we will talk to everyone next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to listen to the sonorous voice of Kai Rizdahl, and please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch to help celebrate the start of the new semester at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, making you deeply anxious that 200 years of academic progress has led to this. Quantitude has been brought to you by Department Listservs. Supporting public shame through inadvertent reply to all in a way that Nathaniel Hawthorne could only have dreamed of. By university conflict of interest policies. Built on the foundation that it's not what you're doing, but what some random future person might think that you're doing. And by the new presidential administration, which is pleased to significantly increase your daily productivity by not requiring you to check your newsfeed every 15 minutes. This is most definitely not NPR.